You are listening to an American Theater podcast. American Theater is a publication of Theater Communications Group. www.americantheater.org. Good evening, everyone. Thanks for joining us. I'm、uh, Russ Denbin, managing editor of American Theater Magazine, and I'm delighted to welcome you to the latest installment of AT Live. Uh, this will be a special event, our announcement of the new season's top ten and top twenty lists of、uh, the new season.、Uh, these lists will appear in our hefty October season preview issue. This time around, focusing on education and, and engagement, and that issue will be on newsstands in the coming days.、Uh, as you may know, American Theater and our web version, americantheater.org, are published by Theater Communications Group, the national service organization for U.S. nonprofit theater. TCG individual memberships come,、uh, include a subscription to the print magazine and provide full access to everything on AmericanTheater.org.、Um, uh, whether you're listening via podcast,、uh, tuning in via Facebook Live, or here with us in Midtown Manhattan at the Lark, we are thrilled that you are here with us.、Um, So、uh, now I'm going to turn things over to American Theater Editor in Chief Rob Weinert Kent. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Thanks, Russ. And I, in turn, turn this over to Deep Tran. We have、uh, we've been uh, doing top ten、uh, lists culled from our season previews. This is the coming season. TCG member theaters around the country submit their season to us, and I think someone 20 years ago, 25 years ago, said, "Oh, we have all this information. Maybe we, we could put it into a spreadsheet and see which plays." Uh, are the most produced. So we've been doing a top ten playlist for since '94, and you can see that online. About four or five years ago, give or take, we thought, why don't we look at the playwrights as well? So we do a top twenty playwrights list. So that's that list is only about four or five years old, but、uh, we're going to start with that list. And Deep is going to Deep Tran, our、uh, uh, senior editor, is going to read that backwards Letterman style. I'm, I'm just going to stand up because I feel kind of awkward. Good. All right, go for it. And also, the microphones are for show slash for the podcast. So <laughs> I'm, I'm projecting. So I'm doing from twenty to ten.、Uh, I just wanted to give a little preamble of what I discovered today, because even though officially we've only been doing the top twenty list since twenty fourteen, Rob in two thousand twelve. About then, yeah. Started counting it just casually because it's a giant spreadsheet and anyone can have access to it. So might as well see what kind of information can be gleaned from it. And in the two and back in two thousand nine, two thousand ten season, almost ten years ago, the number one playwright in America was David Mamet. So let 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 you know. Let's soak that in for a little bit before we <laughs> hear how much the American theater has has changed. <laughs> <laughs> So from ten, from twenty to eleven, the number twenty is Sam Shepard with nine productions. Number nineteen is Duncan McMillan with nine productions. Another across the ponder.、Uh, number eighteen is Bess Wool with nine productions. Number seventeen is Tennessee Williams with ten productions. Number sixteen is Ender Walsh with ten productions. And are the Brits going to take over the American theater? We're going to find <laughs> out. <laughs> Number fifteen is Christina Ham with ten productions. Number fourteen is Jen Silverman with eleven productions. Number thirteen is Brandon Jacobs Jenkins with eleven productions. Number twelve is Ken Ludwig with twelve productions. 
And number 11 is Sarah DeLapp with 13 productions. Pulitzer finalist, Sarah yeah. DeLapp. Yeah. Uh, and 10 to 1. Number 10 is, you know, top 20 favorite, August Wilson with 16 productions. Number 9 is Simon Stevens with 17 productions. Number 8 is Lisa Crone with, with 17 productions. Number seven is Paula Vogel with 18 productions. Number six is Kate Hamill with 18 productions. Number five, and she's in the room right now, is Karen Zacharias with, eight, with, with 18 productions. <laughs> and, <laughs> and number four is Pulitzer winner? Lena? I don't know. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Is Pulitzer winner, winner Lynn Nottage. With four, with twenty productions, two, pulitzers, yeah. two Pulitzers. Yeah. Sorry, oh my God, I offended myself there. <laughs> Number three is Dominique Morisot with twenty six productions. Yeah, and number two is Lauren Gunderson, last year's most produced playwright. This year she has twenty nine productions. And number one, he is also here, and he's feeling very sheepish, sheepish about it, <laughs> is the number one most produced playwright in America is Lucas Nath with 33 productions. Well, congratulations. It, it, uh, it's a striking list. Um, it's uh, 11 of the 20 are, are uh, women. And uh, I don't know the breakdown of people of color, but it's it's the highest representation of non-white men on our, our top 20 list since we've been doing it. So that's exciting. Yeah. So um, and after we do the top 10 list, we're going to have uh, 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 the top 10 plays. We're going to have Karen and, and Lucas are here to do Q&A's about about their work. But uh, now the moment we've all been waiting for, I think, well, one of them. Uh, this is the, the top 10 most produced plays in America in the coming season. Actually, it's 11 because there's a tie for the 10th position. So at number 10, the tie is between Once, the musical with a book by Enda Walsh, and musical lyrics by Glenn Hansard and Marketa Urglova, based on the film by John Carney with nine productions. It's tied with Pride and Prejudice by Kate Hamill, based on the novel by Jane Austen, which is going to be around. Both of those uh, are, are tied for number 10. Then number nine is Skeleton Crew by Dominic Morisot. That was last year. was at number three, but uh, still on the top ten list. Uh, number eight is, is Native Gardens by Karen Zacharias, 12 productions. Uh, number seven is Miss Bennett, Christmas at Pemberley by Lauren Gunderson and Margot Melcon with 13 productions. That's where some of Lauren's uh, numbers come from, having uh, that on there. Uh, then, making its debut on this list is Indecent at number six by Paula Vogel with 12 productions. Uh, this is her first appearance on the list since uh, How I Learned to Drive, which was, I don't remember the year, I think 98, 96. It was the, it was the number one play uh, in the country. Uh, at number five is Fun Home, uh, which was number two last year. Number five, book and lyrics by Lisa Crone, music by Gina Tesori, based on the graphic novel by Alison Bechdel with 12 productions. Um... Number four is The Wolves by Sarah DeLapp with 13 productions. Number three is The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, adapted by Simon Stevens from the novel by Mark Haddon. Number two is Sweat by Lynn Nottage with 16 productions. And knocking them all out of the water, our number one play with 27 productions, here's our moment of theater, folks, <laughs> is A Doll's House Part Two by Lucas Nath. 
so this is our, our cover image for the September issue, not available yet. It'll be in the coming days, uh, or October issue, I mean. Um, so just a few things about this. This, this, this list is also an, an impressive one in terms of if you're, if you're tracking gender and representation. Uh, eight out of the 11 are written by women, and if you track by authors and include composers, there are 11 uh, f you know, female authors or composers on this list versus f three to five men. So I can't say that we're doing a count, actually, of still crunching the numbers about the whole season. We do that every year now to see what the gender parity breakdown is of plays and playwrights um, and which period uh, they're written in. And I can't say that the whole, the whole field is going to look this, this, uh, this good on, on gender parity and representation, but just based on the, the top ten lists. Again, this is the most diverse uh, uh, list that we've, that we've seen. And uh, we, we don't make these lists. We, this reflects what's in the field. So it's kudos to the field for, um, for stepping up in this way. Um, let's see. I, I mentioned some of these are, are back uh, from previous years. Um, you know, and some are are here for the first time because they've only gotten the rights. I think Doll's House is one of those we we expected to see on the list earlier, but I guess this is the first first year it's been available. So I think um, we have a special treat tonight. So it's not just uh, me and playwrights talking. We'd like to give you a sample of the top play uh, for the year, and uh, we have with us Quincy Tyler Bernstein, wonderful actress who's going to do a monologue from Doll's House Part 2. So let me just set it up really quickly if you haven't seen it or read it. Um, Doll's House Part 2, as it, as it the title indicates, is a sequel to Doll's House. Uh, Nora has come back to the house she left abruptly 15 years before with some unfinished business with her husband and her family. And she is talking to the nurse that raised her and then ended up having to raise her children when she left, Anne-Marie. And it comes out that she's made her living in part by writing books, and one of them was a book that was critical of marriage. Uh, and Anne-Marie asks her, well, are you anti-marriage? Are you against marriage? And this is a, her reply. <clears throat> I no longer see a reason for marriage. Also, I think that people who are not happy in their marriages should refuse to honor the contract and leave. Marriage is cruel, and it destroys people's lives. And while you might say that marriage makes a lot of people very happy, I'd argue that most people would be happier, more fulfilled without it. The only reason people get married anyway is because from an early age, our parents, our churches, our leaders, everyone tells us that we need it so we believe it, and the idea gets etched into our skulls. But you only think you need it because it's all you've ever been told. They tell us it's an expression of love, the ultimate expression of love, the one that we're all working towards. But how does that make any sense to say, I love you, therefore you should tie yourself to me, and you can never leave me, you can never love anyone else, you're off limits, I own you. I own you. That's what marriage says. To me, that sounds more cruel than kind. Also, also, when people marry, they say, I choose you, and I choose you forever. But who is this you that you're choosing? Because people change over time. People change into different people. So how can you say that I want to be with this person 
when this person is not going to be this person three or five or ten years from now, but there you are committed forever till death, stuck, stuck either with a person that you don't want to be with or a person pretending to be a person they no longer are. I mean, I'd even go so far as to say that marriage makes a person change for the, for the worse. Because before marriage... Before marriage, you're wooing the other person. Wooing, what does that mean? That means always putting your best, your kindest, your most attractive side forward. And you woo and you woo until you can convince the other person to commit to marriage. And then what happens? What happens when there's no more reason to woo, to put your best self forward? Marriage tells us that you're committed, you're bound to this person regardless of how you're treated. Think about it. Don't you think that that encourages couples to treat each other however they want? To be as awful as you want, it doesn't matter because you're in it until death. This happens all the time, and people are miserable. Yes, yes, we want to be intimate with another person, to know another person, to love that person deeply, and to be naked with that person. But why do we need a marriage for that? And why does it need to be with just one person and for the rest of your life? Seems so sad. And we know it's sad. We know it. We know it, and we feel it, and we go, and we reach outside the contract of marriage. All the time it happens. Men and women, we fail to be faithful because deep down we ache for more, because this ache is in the core of who we are, but we stomp it out, and we beat ourselves up for failing to be something we never were to begin with. And so I say, well, just end it. End marriage. And it will end. I know it. In the future, 20, 30 years from now, marriage will be a thing of the past. And those in the future will look back on us and they'll be in shock, in total just awe at how stupid we are, how backwards our thinking, how sad it is that we put ourselves through this completely unnecessary process of self-torture. 20, 30 years from now, people will have many spouses in a life, even many spouses at once. There won't be lines drawn between couples, and there won't be jealousy because there won't be anything to be jealous of. Thank you. It's a great wedding toast there, uh, Lucas. Uh, no. So why don't you come up, Lucas, and, and, and talk about the play. Great, Lucy. Congrats to you. Thank you. The top of our playwrights and playlist. I was looking back at, uh, at the list, and you know that last year, Lauren was the most produced playwright, but the most produced play was Shakespeare in Love. And... Uh, August Wilson was the previous year's most produced playwright, but I forget. I think it was Hand to God was the most. In fact, if you walked in here, you might have seen Rob Askins, the playwright of Hand to God, sitting in the writer's room uh, writing. So, you know, top ten playwrights, they end up all different places. Um, and uh, But the previous two years, it was Disgraced and Vani and Sonia, and that, the, those were also the most produced playwrights. Um, so you've joined a, a illustrious company. Uh, t- I, I don't think we've talk, ever talked about this play or its genesis or you want to talk about that a little bit with me yeah it started off as a it was a commission from south coast rep right um and i had had on a list of titles of plays that i might someday write a doll's house part two 
and uh, I mean, it really did just start with a title. Really? Uh, I thought it would be a funny, you know, that's a funny idea. <laughs> do a sequel. Um, and so I'd been toying with it for a while. Uh, and then when I talked to South Coast Rep about the things I was thinking about, we talked about their theater. And their, their theater does a great deal of work with new plays, but it also has a, a, a subscriber base that really responds to the classics. Right, right. And um, thought, well, this will be a kind of interesting way to kind of bring those two sides together um and uh uh i i then just set about to i went online and found a really bad translation of ibsen like for, for on a website just printed on a website uh with, of doll's house of, yeah, yeah on okay. like one of those badly designed websites with hideous wallpaper and, right right and um i uh cut and pasted it into a document and went through the play and um uh line by line wrote Ibsen's play in my own words and by the oh. time I got worked my way to the ending there is this very strong uh, urge or, or, or a sense of everything that sort of didn't get said in, in the Ibsen play and that became the launching point Oh really? Because I just read both plays back to back last week I, a better translation I think probably but, uh, <laughs> but uh, and it was striking. It did, it did feel like the imp- that, that does realize that impulse of all the things that you wish they had said to each other, things that you uh, might might have been thinking, like why don't you want to you want to shake them and say just just talk to each other, right? Yeah. You know. Um, so it wasn't was it a play? Was Doll's House a play that you particularly had in your bones before that, or something that you felt like a real bee in your bonnet? It was just a title. Yeah. No. I I'm, I I really am a big Ibsen fan. Okay. Um, and. Uh, I always kind of wanted the chance to kind of walk around in his shoes a little bit okay. and, and uh, figure out and feel out how Ibsen does what Ibsen does. Uh, I was also a really big fan of the Lee Brewer, Mabu Mines uh, oh, dollhouse. Doll's House, that, yeah. That, um, it was a, a pr- production that, that um, had some very eccentric casting choices. And well, why don't you it, explain it, that? I don't well, think everybody was, knows about it that was one. A, it was a production where um, uh, all the women were, were played by women who were uh, six feet taller, taller, and all the men were played by men who were about five foot taller sh- or shorter. Right, um, and the, the sets were actual like uh, to scale with the men. Right. So, uh, uh, and and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Peter Dinklage was Torvald in an early workshop okay. of it. All right. And then he did Station Agent, and then became a. Uh, did, had you seen that production, or you I, just I were did. aware of it? And, okay. Yeah. And um, uh, one of the things that sort of I was really struck by anytime I went and saw an experimental theater production of Ibsen, mm-hmm. um, uh, the results varied. In Lee Brewer's case, it was a, a great production. Um, I've seen some really bad ones, but mm-hmm. you always kind of oddly come out saying, huh, that production, don't know about it, but that play is really good. Right, right. And uh, I was trying to figure out what it is about Ibsen that something, something of the skeleton, something of the bones really holds up. So I wanted to ask about that. What, what, what is it? Do you have any insights about what, what makes Ibsen work? I mean, one thing that you alluded to is I feel like there's a lot buried in there in the corners of the play that un, unanswered questions, I guess subtext would be another word for it, but yeah. is, is it that or is it something else? Uh, I, I think my, my particular filter is kind of tuned into how Ibsen deals with argument. Okay. That, um, uh, the, the plays are a series of arguments, and all of the characters, no matter what their perspective, have a kind of great reason and a kind of terrible reason for doing what they're doing. Okay. So that that ability to sort of construct a play where um, 
you know, in 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 the best translations, this actually comes through where right. you don't quite know entirely who to side with. Right. Which when you say both have good and bad reasons, I think there are playwrights who try to <clears throat> give us the best argument. I think Shaw might be one where everyone makes sense, yeah, and everyone seems to have a really good reason. But you're saying, and I think it's true, Ibsen's characters have good reason, but also bad reason. There's a there's a, a sort of a venal reason for what they're doing, as well as lofty and noble. Yeah, yeah. yeah there's yeah. there's uh, some some sort of base desire, urge, or uh, oftentimes it's ego right. um, gets in the way. Right. Um, so I was also wondering whether you felt as you were writing it um, that it was a companion piece. Do you think it works as a companion piece or were you, you concerned with how much it would be able to stand alone without knowledge of the original? Yeah, I was really concerned that it stand alone. Okay. Like that, that was the test. And, okay. and in constructing it, I started writing the play in a workshop at uh, New Dramatist. And okay. it's this um, workshop called Playtime where you have five or six different playwrights all working on stuff at the same time and you have all of their actors in a room together and so I used it as an opportunity to poll the room for what they remembered from the original Doll's okay. House and um, people's uh, kind of incorrect memories about the play actually inspired what the play came to be because uh, you know Nora and Torvald aren't going to remember exactly right. what happened in their argument either and that became a good way of making sure, too, that the place stood alone. Um, and, uh, you know, I was, I was interested in people who weren't quite sure which one was Doll's House and which one was Hedda Gabler. Okay. <laughs> uh, so it's written for them. It's funny. I, the translation I saw, there was actually a line, there's actually a line in Doll's House in which someone says, people don't do such things. So that's in both of those plays, that sort of, right, that sort yes. of judgment. Uh, that's interesting. Um, I wondered also, I think there are two productions around the country this coming season of Doll's House, right? But we haven't yet seen anybody do them in repertory or do them as a sort of package the way they did with Raisin in the Sun and uh, Clyburn Park, for instance, you know? Yeah. Is that something that you've you've heard about? I'm I'm hearing rumblings. You're hearing rumblings? Yeah, yeah. So I think that will happen. Speaking of productions, it's intriguing the way this one happened coastally pretty much at the same time. Yeah. So South Coast commissioned it and then staged it, this lovely production we put on our cover with Shannon Cochran in the lead. Shelley Butler was the director, mm-hmm. is that right? Yes. And then at the same time, at a concurrent track, so to get it straight, South Coast did the world premiere in, in Costa Mesa, California, and then about three weeks later, it was also in previews at, on, in Broadway in a commercial yeah. production produced by Scott Rudin. And that opened April 27th. Or something like, is there contention over which is the premiere? Or is <laughs> well, the world premiere is South Coast. South Coast, right. Because right, they, right. they opened first. We, mm-hmm. we started previews on Broadway before we started previews at South Coast. Okay. But then South Coast had a shorter preview period, and they opened first, and then... So is this like Feast or, I mean, Feast or Famine? Playwrights would, would kill for production anywhere, and you have one on Broadway and one at a regional at the same time. Were you flying back and forth uh, a lot? A, a little bit. <laughs> I actually was only able to fly back to South Coast Rep once One time. Okay. for a couple of days and then had to go back. But uh, really a credit to uh, Shelley Butler um, that uh, we figured out a way to just sort of coordinate all the discoveries I was making in New York with them, okay. but also create kind of a firewall so that Shelley was directing her own production of it yeah. and didn't have to hear about anything we were doing in terms of staging, so she was really free. 
and um, it was great. I mean, but like it, it, it was it was a really strange situation. Did you get to see the South Park production? No, you didn't get to I, see it. I didn't. Oh yeah, my gosh! Yeah, because okay. I was actually still doing a couple of rewrites in New York after okay. they opened, and then I I wasn't really able to fly back. Are you allowed to do that, Lucas? You were, you were doing rewrites after. Of the play after it opened after, here? Af- uh, no, oh, after, after South Coast. South Coast. I got gotcha. you. Yeah. Okay, yeah. right, right, right. I didn't think you could, you have to lock the play at some point, right? Yeah, no, I, I got to let them memorize <laughs> at some point. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and uh, is it, how did this concurrent production happen? Was this, was this? I mean, I, to fluke? this day, don't actually entirely know how it happened okay, because okay. I'm actually very kind of, I don't like showing my plays to anybody. I just, I, like, I put them under lock and key and, and somehow... Uh, my my um, wonderful producer Scott Rudin yeah. like got his hands on a copy and really and so it wasn't uh, submitted by anybody no something? no okay. no really yeah it had it had leaked <laughs> it leaked out that's, that's all I know <laughs> that's crazy and um, and uh, I have a theory but I'm not going to share it okay um, <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah I mean and and uh, uh, I was really skeptical that it was a good idea. Um, to, to do it to on do Broadway. it that way, yeah. to just go straight to Broadway. Cause yeah, I mean, it's because it's scary. Because I think some people, in fact, I think even Wikipedia says this about the play that it, it transferred. Yeah, and I think that's the idea that a lot of plays start in start in regionals, and then they go to and they work some stuff out, and then they go to Broadway. But this this opened essentially cold on Broadway with a not cold. You had this other thing to sort of workshop ideas with, but basically cold. Yeah, basically yeah. cold. You so. know, that doesn't happen with new plays very often. No. I mean, no. it's going to happen this coming season with Taylor Mac and Gary, a sequel to Titus Andronicus. It seems to be a theme with Scott Rudin productions, yeah. right? The sequels, unlikely sequels at least. Um, I was wondering about, um, let me see. Uh, you know, re- reading both, both plays back to back, I was struck how different Nora and Torvald are, and they talk about how different they are from the, from the way they were 15 years before. I mean, You've alluded to the way that you use the the, the faulty memory as, as part of the explanation, yeah. but you 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 really, in some sense, are it's a, obviously it's a different play, and these are different people. It's not like you're writing uh, a franchise sequel like the approved. You know what I'm saying? Right, it's yeah. like it, it, you've made your own Nora and Torvald, is what I'm saying. Yeah, and I I I, I think it it that that was actually really important to me that it just sort of be uh, entirely my own characters, but also. Know people change, you know, they, right. they, and then and uh, 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 there's something that made sense that it, it needed to not be so dependent on um, the 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 behavioral traits that the characters right had that in the they had like the, the what was it the macaroons yeah it was yeah. really important. In fact, actually, when I went through and wrote. Ibsen's play in my own words I stripped out the all the references to birds and the macaroons and all the things that we kind of easily readily the, associate all the kids scenes and stuff right yeah, 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 yeah. I actually stripped those out too yeah because I don't remember I've only seen it maybe once a few years ago with Janet McTeer and I don't remember the kids scenes but they're they're written in the original just like the kids play with her and they talk and it goes on for a while on yeah. the page I don't know how that's usually staged but a lot of people cut it I think okay that must yeah. be it and the Tarantella they do all that stuff on as part of the yeah, yeah, no. Yeah. It was, again, it was important. To, well, <laughs> I, I kept I kept the Tarantella in my my sort of re- rewrite of Ibsen, but um, it was yeah. Another thing that uh, 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 resonates. I mean, there, there's a lot of things that resonate with the original play in terms of the kinds of secrets they're keeping, and the kinds of things they're trying to set right. Um, it seems 
the one thing that's hard to um, avoid thinking about is this is a world in which Nor, uh, uh, Nora and Torvald live in the world that Ib- Ibsen lived in, but that Doll's House hasn't happened in, the play. Yeah. And yet her, the books that she's written sound a lot like, she's written one sort of Roman Clay book that sounds like her life and what she went through, like Nora, my story, basically. Like yeah. I, and, and it's almost as if the books she's written and the controversy she's created in writing books about how you should leave your marriage and how marriage sucks, and you know, that that's created the kind of controversy that Doll's House, the play itself, did. Were you conscious of that sort of? Yes, that w- that was that was a choice that I made to. Yeah, I kind of wanted Doll's House to happen, but it also turned out when I started researching um, that th- those books also existed. Okay, there actually were you know, books like the, that. Okay. Yeah, I forget the line, but there's a line where she alludes to this sort of surge of popularity of of writing from women, and in fact, that was true. Right. Okay. Um, so it's it's pl- also plausible that Nora could could have been a female author who was well exactly yeah. and also like the 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 real person that ibsen uh sort of based nora on was actually a writer okay so this was sort of a little bit of a nod to the the true history of nora okay i didn't realize that you said you wrote this and we'll, we'll never see the text of of your version of doll's house in your language in your own language i wondered about i think you've said that you sometimes don't even write until you have actors in front of you is that yeah. is that true yeah, so I'll often what I'll what I'll do is I'll write these sort of raw fragmenty scraps, okay. um, uh, no complete scenes, just really rough material, and I I generate, I mean in some cases two hundred or so pages, and then uh, I get into a room and I just have actors read them in different orders, and I move them around, and mm-hmm. and uh, uh, I sort of assemble the play in the room with actors. Right, and I was what I was curious about also was. The degree to which did you modulate how much of your own language you use? When I say contemporary language, like the profanity and, yeah. and, and things that sound ca- casual speech, it does seem like you're walking. A, you definitely walk the tightrope between formal speech that sounds like it was translated a little bit, mm-hmm. like a formal classic language, and much more frank. Just we're talking, just you and I talking language. I mean, did you yeah. be conscious of that? Yeah, kind of yeah, that balance? was a lot of trial and error. And okay. you'll notice that characters will tend to use profanity right at the end of a long bit of exposition, okay. which is <laughs> sort of the release valve for that. Right. Okay. <laughs> they also, I mean, they also use it, you know, like when they're really mad at each other. Yes, planet, which that is, too. Maybe the exposition is pissing them off, right? Um, I, I want to, we're gonna also going to talk to Karen, and then I wonder if after we speak to her about her play, we could have both of you talk, come and talk about right. just the state of playwriting. And I want to ask briefly before we do that, Tell us a little bit about your next play, because you were talking about it before. Your next play at, yeah. at Center Theater Group. Yeah, yeah. so I, I've written a play about my mother. She's, for a while, wanted me to write a play about this incident that happened about 20 years ago when she was a, a hospital chaplain working in the psych ward. And uh, she started working with this one patient who, uh, long long story short, <laughs> that the play gets into, um, the the guy had taken her hostage for about a period of two months. And so the play is sort of her in verbatim telling of this story. And um, it's sort of, I mean, but... Uh, she tells it in such a peculiar way because she's sort of laughing through it and making these kind of shocking jokes. And so I just took the recording of her telling the story and edited it into a monologue, and the play's written to be lip-synced. Right. So it's a, it would be an actor on stage, but with my mother's voice coming out of her. 
So I have so many questions about that, but I think we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll uh, I can also like who's going to play it. And I can't wait, can't wait to hear more about that. Uh, for now, I think we'll have, uh, thank you, Lucas. Uh, We'll have uh, a deep uh, talk to Karen Zacharias about her play Native Gardens, which is the number five play. I can't remember the numbers now. It's right in front of me here. The eighth, the, the eighth, the eighth most produced play of the coming season, but she's the fifth most produced playwright. I think that's right. Yeah. All right. Come on up. Hard act to follow. And you more than hold your own. Come on now. <laughs> stop being. Stop, it's like stop, stop being a woman of color about it. Okay. <laughs> no, because that, that's one of the things like I love about Karen, though. I mean, we, we've been we've been friends for years only because like we follow each other on Twitter. I love her cat tweets. Yeah. <laughs> and also food recommendations. Yeah. So if you're on Twitter, you should follow Karen Zacharias. But I actually wanted to talk to you first about Native Gardens, okay. and can you tell me about how, who commissioned the play and how, and how it came to be? Okay, so um, it was commissioned by Blake Robeson at Cincinnati Playhouse in the Park, and he and I had worked uh, before we did a, uh, the book club play and how the Garcia girls lost their accent uh, back when he lived in D.C., and he'd also produced those at Cincinnati Playhouse. And um, as playwrights tend to do sometime, I was at a party. I was like, oh, my God, I have a commission. I don't know what to write about. And all my friends are always like, write about me. And I'm like, (laughs) I go, why should I write about you? And one of my friends said, I'm in a fight with my neighbors and describe this fight. And then the other friend says, oh, that's nothing. You know, My you know, downstairs neighbor wears heels every day, and I'm in a fight over that. And then someone else said, well, my mother in Florida, and so many of these stories take place in Florida, but uh, <laughs> um, it was you know, this terrible story about a driveway. And we all talked about how hard it is to be in a fight with your neighbor and how human it is. And as I was driving home, because I was like, I'll never write a play about that, I, I, uh, I was like, wow, there's something kind of primal and poetic and absolutely absurd about all of these stories. And it was just, it was even before like the, the presidential primaries um, that was going on. And I was like, I wonder if I can take a story of four people dealing about, you know, uh, their backyard and discover something about property, about culture, about the isms going on. And so I I wrote the play. um, And my first version had a very tragic ending. Um, And then I sat back and I was like, wow, it seemed like the easiest way to go is with the tragic ending. What would it take for it to be a happy ending, and what would it take for it to become a comedy? So it was kind of a, a test, in a sense. Right. And Native Gardens, you, if you live in New York, you have, you have not seen it, because it has, it has been produced everywhere but New York. And it is a four-person comedy with three unspoken roles attached to it, and it is about a young Latinx couple who move into a new house, and their and their neighbors are white Republicans, sixty-year-old retirees, and they get into a conflict about what their backyards should look like, and also the the Latinx couple discover that their yard is actually bigger than what they had thought, and actually encroach encroaches on their neighbor's yard, and so it's a property battle. 
it's a border dispute. And it's, it's a border dispute. And there are walls that are, may or may not be built. And you wrote this before the election, did you? Well, you know, you, you know, uh, as a Latinx person, so you, you know, the election, like, oh, this is so happening. You know, this is so on. It's just a zeitgeist of what was happening. This has been happening for years, in a sense. It's been mm-hmm. in the air. This kind of cultural um, anger, this kind of um, uh, d- direction against Latinos, and all of that. So, it, it, even though it seems like it kind of, it, it kind of grew, and, and now people are saying it out loud much more. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it was something that was coming up already then, and then we went full throttle when the actual wall started coming up in conversation and all of that. But that was already part of the play before that. Yeah. Why did you want it to be a comedy? Because um, I really thought to get people from different points of view and an audience together, I, I, we couldn't keep, it, it, we couldn't go too dark. For people to be able to disarm themselves and laugh at their own foibles, it had, we had to, it was a different approach to dealing with, with hard, hard issues. And it's been really interesting to watch this play go around the country to both very liberal uh, cities to more conservative cities and see how the audience reacts. Because um, I definitely believe a, a play is, 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 is alive in front of the audience and what the audience takes away with it is, is really important. And the idea of community and if everyone in the room is having a moment of recognition no mm-hmm. matter where you are, I feel that that's the beginning of real dialogue, in a sense. Right. I mean, do you think that's the tactic? Not tactic. That, that's an ugly word, but that, that is how we connect to you know, the other side. Wherever it is one is. way to connect to the other, to the other side, with, with a very relatable subject. I also wrote it in a, on purpose in a very accessible way. Um, for a lot of theaters, this is the first time they've had Latino actors on stage. Oh, um, wow period um, and the first time they've had Latino actors being PhD students and you know lawyers as well so for me it's also that idea of the first time of representation in a lot of different places um, because it's it's actually something that's kind of uh, part of a new a new revolution to say anything <laughs> so. so that was part of the the thought too right and I mean, I think it was a Los Angeles Times review of the production, which was recently, which recently just closed, or is it no, no, still? just opened. Oh, it just opened at the Geffen Playhouse, directed no, by no, oh, no, 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 at oh, Pasadena Pasadena Play- Playhouse, yes. and is directed by Jason Alexander. Yes, of Seinfeld. Yes, yeah. and uh, the reviewer Charles McNulty compared it to a, a Neil Simon play. Yes, and I, because I, I find it so interesting that comedy isn't actually a common genre in the American theater right now. And I, and I think there's a lot of, um, a lot of judgment about yes. playwrights trying to write comedies, yes. especially when you're trying to write comedy about a social issue. And did you get a lot of, uh, th- th- this makes it too frivolous? Or Some people, but most people are like, oh, I can finally exp- talk about white privilege with my you know, mother-in-law. <laughs> Because it's 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 presented in such a in, in such a way, and I think theaters have been, oh, uh, this is a play where uh, a lot of people are coming in feeling satisfied, no matter where they are, and also, it's been a dark time, 
the idea of being in a room and hearing and laughing <laughs> is actually kind of therapeutic um, <laughs> and lovely. And it's been interesting. I mean, the play has extended a lot of places. And, mm -hmm. and no, it, it's, it's been very interesting to me because I also harbor these mixed feelings with my own work when it's comedy because I'm like, oh, my gosh, I, should I be hitting people harder? Should I be doing this? But it's very interesting to watch people respond the way they have to it. And, um, I, I learn something every time. I, I mean, what has the con what have the conversations been like with audiences, like conservative audiences versus liberal audiences? Well, what's great is when both are in the room, yeah. um, and that's happened yeah. quite a bit. Uh, are they fights? The no. The idea that there's a commonality that I never thought of it in that way. I mean, there is a happy ending at the end because there's a compromise. Mm -hmm. There's a compromise that's made. It's actually, when I look back at him, like it's not that hard to have a, a happy. And you know, granted too, everybody's redeemable and likable <laughs> in the play. We're not, you know, we're 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 not going out to the outer fringes. But it's been really interesting how many people have felt like, on the contrary, like they're 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 it's it's gone the the anger has gone down in some way, or the idea that you things can work out on a human level mm -hmm. is actually, there's a feeling of hope that has come. That's the word that I keep hearing mm -hmm. is hope. Right, and also when things are bleak, you just, you just, you just have to laugh. You just have to laugh. <laughs> yeah, especially when it's all through the metaphor of plants. I mean, the uh, people are fighting over 23 inches and over you know uh, hydrangeas, and they really feel very strongly about mm -hmm. the hydrangeas. And so it's, it's, it's like the movie Election, where everything <laughs> seems very important in that moment, but when you step up behind it, you know. Uh, and I, I also want to talk a little bit about your career more broadly. Um, the season on as a number, the fifth most produced player in America, you're, you're represented with Native Gardens and also Ella Enchanted, the musical mm -hmm. of work for young audiences, and also Frida Libre. Right. And what? Destiny of Desire, yeah. too. Yeah. Really? No, yeah, I, we I just closed that Oregon oh, Shakespeare Oh, yes, 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 yes. That was last season. Oh, well, oh, I feels like two months ago. So yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, and this is your second time on the top 20. You're also on it in 2016, 2017. And you know, this is the question we asked Lauren Gunderson last oh, yeah, year. As question. a person who's never been produced in New York. I've been done a repertorio español. So, yeah. yes. <laughs> oh, yes, I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah. Repertorio español, yeah. but not a player at Horizons. No. Not at any of the incubators no. you think would make you famous. Right. Do you need New York? Do, 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 do people need New York? I want New York. Um, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I mean, it's like, why didn't Brad Pitt ask me to prom? You know, I can sit there and, and, and all, all, the, all the good and bad reasons for that can keep you uh, uh, awake at night. Um, I, I, I'm a subversive writer. I think things look one way on paper and they sneak mm -hmm. up on you. I think my whole level of activism both with you know starting the Latinx Theater Commons and doing Young Playwrights Theater, which is teaching playwriting as conflict resolution in, in the public schools of DC. All of it has been with this bigger kind of idea of, of, of starting dialogue. I, mm -hmm. I'm a Mexican immigrant. I, was, I just became a citizen last year. I mean, I, I, I've been, I feel very much at home and an outsider all the time. So I'm not baffled by the non-New York thing. Mm -hmm. I'm also hoping that that will change, but I don't live in New York. I don't know a lot of people in New York. I never did the networking 
kind of thing. Um, I live in Washington, D.C. with three kids, two dogs, and, you know, a messy mm -hmm. yard. And so um, there is that aspect of it. Right. Well, and what I love about your bio is you didn't set out to become a playwright. Like, you graduated from Stanford with a degree in international relations, and you worked at a Latin American policy think tank. And so why... It's like you're very civically engaged and you want your work to have impact on the world. So why become a playwright? Because I always wanted to be a writer. When I was six years old, I, the first when I got my money from the El Raton, the, the, the tooth fairy, I saved it to buy a typewriter. Um, and I just, I always wanted to be a writer. I was just scared about... Uh, being a responsible writer. I come from a family in Mexico of, of, of artists. My grandfather is actually a f very famous movie director mm -hmm. in Mexico. And I've also seen, you know, different parts of, of being an artist sometimes can act, you know, sometimes it could feel selfish. Um, mm -hmm. And so for me, I first had to feel that I could stand on my own feet and then I had to feel that my writing and somehow was was doing something um, well he was healing in some kind of in some kind of way so I and you know my the, the famous story is when I moved to this country there was a, a boy um, in Boston because we moved to Boston who uh, teased me and he called me names and I, I didn't know what to say I had no dialogue back so I went home and I wrote down something so the next time he said oh yeah you speak with an accent blah 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 I was like oh yeah well blah, blah you know and as I started writing the dialogue I was like why is this boy calling me names I'm like oh his father doesn't love him enough and I was like oh my god and then I kept writing as like oh and his brother does this and so I wrote this long play about this boy who was harassing me. And by mm -hmm. the time I re-met him again, I had so much compassion for him. And, you mm -hmm. know, and it became my tool for navigating the, this new country, in a way. And it became a, why I, I started a, a nonprofit to teach playwriting in schools and all of that. It was just a different way of navigating the world. Right. And, be, and, you, and you, you live in D.C., so it's like a very... I feel like artists who live in D.C. are, are very civically engaged. Yeah. And... And also very jealous that Ruth Bader Ginsburg like goes to your theaters just casually. Sonia so Sonia Sotomayor <laughs> too. So that's great. And like I, I feel like right now with the with the political climate we're living in, like our, a lot of artists are asking themselves like what what can my art do? Like what can I do as an artist in this medium that seems so small sometimes? Yeah. And so like what do you tell them about like what how how to become like how how to be a civic citizen while being an artist? And my question is always, why are you writing? Not the what, but why. Mm -hmm. Why are you writing this now? What do we have to learn from this play at this moment, at this time? It's always about that. And once you know, uh, you should never describe your play. You should say why you're writing it. Um, and that's, that's been what's helped me mm -hmm. um, make sense of this really weird career. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's have like a longer conversation between you and Lucas about your both of your really weird careers. <laughs> we'll just we'll talk a little bit, and then we'll do Q and A if you all want to ask questions of the playwrights tonight. Uh, I realize I didn't do very good at introducing you as uh, as as deep did Karen that you 
have an OB for Red Speedo, and your other plays include the Christians. Uh, one reason you're at the top of the uh, the, play, the Christians is being performed, and I think uh, Red Speedo as well around the country. Um, other plays include Death Tax and. Uh, Sorry, uh, other plays include Death Tax. Red, Red Speedo is one of his plays he won an OB for. Um, anyway, I just thought I would insert some of that. Uh, so we have two very, uh, very much produced plays, playwrights around the country, and they in, in different ways. I, I think last year we were really struck by the top play being Shakespeare in Love, never having played in New York. Now, it had a, a Disney brand behind it. Disney owns the rights to the Shakespeare in Love play, and they were doing it all over the country, and all of a sudden, and Lauren Gunderson also being our top playwright of the year is a playwright who had has had one or two productions in New York but not major productions but now we're back to with with you at the top of the list uh, Lucas um, s- someone who has a big production in New York and then that sort of interests everybody in your production after that right um, but we have seen it go in both directions there have been plays that start out of town and then have a lot of productions and then they come to New York and then the New York production gives it press and goes out. But in case of you, you, Karen, are more in the model of someone who's just had a lot of productions and relationships all around the country, mm-hmm. uh, and that that is also a career. Um, I wonder if you could compa- compare notes about, I know, Lucas, you also have had uh, a lot of relationships around the country that l- fed into the New York part of your career. Is, is that Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I, I think it was something that started it, uh, uh, my my. My professional debut was Death Tax at Actors Theater of Louisville, right. and they have uh, an industry weekend, and so in two days I met everybody in one go. Right. Okay. Um, and those became relationships that grew. You right. um, you do you've you've done also uh, South Coast Rep, right? right? Mm-hmm. And and they have a similar sort of. I did the Hispanic Playwrights Project about twenty years ago. Oh, okay. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> some time ago. But then, so, Karen, how did you branch out from from Washington D.C. and start to create relationships? Did you have? Did you didn't have it all in one weekend like Lucas? Or was it more of a? No, I mean, I think I was writing. I think uh, my f- first big break was The Goodman. Who did um, uh, I've had four productions at The Goodman, okay. um, and so they were always interested in having. Uh, uh, Latinx stories and okay. so they, they reached out to me in that way and I had a, a production there and so that kind of set me up on you know that level and uh, from there it's just different theaters who wanted to expand their, the, you know the, the idea of what an American story was right, right. Uh, those theaters Denver Center mm-hmm. um, South Coast Rep right. uh, and then in my own hometown Arena Stage and Roundhouse Theater they were they were doing that, and right. I was also as someone who taught taught and was doing playwriting in the schools. I was noticing that a lot of plays for my students weren't reflective of what they needed. Mm-hmm. So I started writing plays for young people as well, and that was a whole other genre and world. So you uh, had both going tracks going at the same yeah. time, yeah. And you still have both going. Yes, all the, Elliot, that's what leads to Ellen Enchanted. Ellen Enchanted, yeah. Which is the, at the Alliance Theater coming up soon? Is that right? It's it's going. It was or just no. at South Coast. South Coast. Rep. Okay. Yeah, it's going to. Oh my God! It's got it's got like seven or eight. Oh, I'm thinking of there's Enchanted. I think it's going to be at the Alliance Theater. Yes. I mean, that diff, different one. Okay, sorry. Yeah, different Enchanted. Um, so it, it it sounds like. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. My impression is that there is obviously. I think that there's a conception about the top ten list, is that we put out this list and then every theater does those ten plays and that's all they do, and I think. There's some truth to that. People do follow what's in New York. They follow what's what's been produced a lot, 
and it, it breeds more production. But I think what, what what I'm hearing, and you can you can chime in if you want, there there is a network of people talking to each other, not in New York. That are that are Denver's talking to the Goodman, the Goodman's talking to Seattle. There, and and there's Louisville plays a part in that. Um, I don't know if there's a is there, there's a sort of coherent ecosystem or food chain. Do you feel like it's clear the path from from being a, being a playwright and workshop to having lots of productions, or has it been more just you've, you've thread it th however you can? Is it ever clear? <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> Go ahead. No, yeah. it's mysterious, it's isn't mysterious. it? It's yeah. mysterious. Yeah. It's like seeing a postcard from someone saying, I wish you were here, and you have no idea what the island is and how they got there. Oh. It really is. <laughs> it, it, it is a mysterious thing, and you, you don't understand. I don't understand season planning yeah. at all. I don't How one year a play can almost make it to the season, and then it, if it doesn't, it's never brought up sometimes again right, you know right. what made it worthy that year doesn't make so it, it's a it's a incredible uh mystery to me did you feel that the the field in general i'm asking you to be sort of be sort of pundits here but do you, do you think like the field is encouraging to new writers and new voices uh uh or i mean one one thing that we didn't mention tonight is that we always leave shakespeare off the list uh, Shakespeare is still the most produced playwright in the country. Uh, I don't. It's like 90 productions in the coming season, so it's not actually Lucas Nath. It's William Shakespeare. <laughs> it's the most produced. But we just leave them off because otherwise, we just want to make room for 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 all the rest. Um, and we also don't put Christmas Carol on because that's its own special special case uh, for the production one. But I wondered, do, do you feel like it's it, it's a it's a good time for new plays? Basically, do you feel like it, the climate is is welcoming. Yeah, I I do. I actually, it's interesting. I, I, I do feel like there's a hunger in it. And maybe it's because we can get story from so many different places. We get story from the internet and mm -hmm. this and that. That actually the idea of being in a room with other people absorbing a new story for the first right. time is I, I, I'm finding more theaters are surprised Native Gardens for example yeah. you know a new play no name recognition no anything right. was suddenly you know I, I, I did very well critically and commercially at Cincinnati the Guthrie picked it up they said same thing so it was it's been interesting I think people are hungry for something new and some in the storytelling together. So I, I do think it's an interesting time for new plays. Right, right. New writers is a harder, it's harder. I, I do worry about how do we foster new voices and make ways into them for them to be part of these, these, the ecosystem. Right, right. Do, do you feel? It, it seems that there are more entry points now than there were perhaps like 15, yeah. 20 years ago. Um, there are more uh, uh, places that you can apply to to uh, have your work um, and to, to experiment, to, to, to try to cultivate your voice, your sensibility, your writing. Um, so that seems like a really positive trend. Right. I, I hope that continues. Right, you know, right, there's right. more room for that. Yeah, we did a story a couple years ago about the the... the Looking at the Broadway season a couple years ago had Oslo and Indecent, Sweat. Uh, uh, remind me deeply, was that the fourth? There were, there were, there were four new, new plays. Oh, no, it wasn't yours that year. Oh, it was yours. Yeah. yeah. Yes, yeah. it was. Yeah. I'm sorry. Sorry. Uh, 
and Significant Other were all five new plays by living writers on Broadway. And uh, then this past season has not been so great for that. But next season, it looks like an amazing season for new writing. Um, and Broadway's not the only barometer, nor just as this top ten list is not the only barometer. But it seems like a snapshot of, you know, that there's an, there is an appetite for, for new plays. Um, uh, I want to turn over the uh, – see if anyone has any questions in the audience before we break and have some wine and cheese uh, right here in the front. Do you want to um, speak into the – are you just – Okay, um, this is for Lucas. Um, did you did you write the anachronisms into Doll's House Part Two, or was that were both productions? Did they have that design design wise? Yes, and yes, yes. That that was built cooked into the play. Why? Uh, the play's trying to prompt the audience to think about how much has changed and how much hasn't. And the anachronisms, the sort of abstracted set design uh, allows space to sort of let the mind imagine that Nora is simultaneously talking about then, but also now. What are some anachronisms? I don't, I don't recall that was it in, in, the, in the design. Was it? Was it well, I mean, the, this, yeah, the sort of, like, that room would never look like that, they, right? They, right. They, okay. You know, but um, but no. I'm also remembering. I do think. I do think Laurie Metcalf did drink out of a plastic bottle at one point. That's not in the play. <laughs> that was a that was a that was a, a Laurie Metcalf special. Okay. It was. We had a you label t- printed that said Fjord Water on it. Seriously, <laughs> yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. Other questions from the audience? Yeah, here, Marshall. Well, congratulations to both of you for uh, your accomplishment and your work. Um, Lucas, I'm just curious. You said you, you transcribed a bad version of Doll's House. Why the bad version and not a more standard? Yeah, because it's, you know, I, it's, it's a lot less intimidating, right? I kind of need to look at it, and it kind of has to need me in some way. Um, that's really why. You want it, it's like it's something needs to you fix, right? Yeah. Needs fixing, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Do you need another translation? Oh yeah, here. Okay. Uh, for both of you, have you ever refused somebody who wanted to do your play, and if you did, for what reason? Yes. Well, I thought that um, that they didn't want to. Uh, that they might want to, that there's a cultural sensitivity that might be lacking, and I'd rather the play be done well, because there was so little representation at that time, than be done badly and and take make it from being a subversive satire to a farce or something like that. So I I, I have I have. Yeah, a couple of times. Um, uh, I mean, I probably can't share specifics, yeah. but. <laughs> Um, no, there have been cases where, uh, especially if it's a first production, yeah. you want to make sure that you've got the right habitat, habitat for the play, that, that um, uh, you can grow it the way it needs to be grown, that you're going to be supported the way that you need to be supported. And there have been cases where uh, we realized, oh, yeah, this isn't really a match, so we're going to have to go our separate ways. 
and that's harder as a young playwright because you don't know and it's scary and you want certain things. But as you get, you learn that sometimes saying no is a better yes in the long, in the long run. We doing on time. Good, good. Um, oh. Yeah, deep. Question on oh, there's a question from our Facebook live stream. Uh, question for Karen: Do you have anything coming up in Cincinnati? Maybe. <laughs> 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 yeah, I, I think I am hoping so. So yes. Um, other questions? Yeah, Marshall. No, it's all right. <laughs> Okay, this is for Karen. So in terms of you um, in this dual world, um, aside from being the mom, but uh, working with young artists mm -hmm. and then professionally, do you find that they kind of feed each other? And if so, in what ways? Absolutely. Everything, feed, everything I do is related to writing in some way, whether it's like walking the dog or... Um, or, uh, or writing. But I mean, it's what uh, Lucas was saying about feeling a need. The kids say, oh, the, you know, this bored me or what have you. And I'm like, what, what, what are you not seeing that you need to see on stage? And they're like, I have never, never seen my mother on stage. I have never seen, you know, someone like my brother on stage. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to give that to you, you know. Mm -hmm. Or I'm going to talk to people about doing that. There are so many stories that have not been put on stage in so many different ways. And people feel left out. And if you suddenly see your story or someone who looks like you or has a connection to you on the main stage of American theater, it makes you feel that you're part of the American story. And so I, that's, that has been a very big part of people just asking to feel connected. So yeah. Hmm. Yeah, yeah you, all right, go ahead. <laughs> I don't need the mic. Oh yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I have a, a uh, yes. So I have many productions going on, and I mean, there's a there's a play of mine about a Mexican nun that's been done in Texas like 35 times in competition with other Texas schools. And I have a play that started at the Denver Center called Just Like Us, which is about undocumented students that is being done. I think it's had about. 80 readings last year and it's been done in colleges and different places so yeah, yeah that's part of the joy I have a play that's going to be in a prison so I'm really you excited you offer that. that offer that for free yeah. in, in response to the I got really mad yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. and my agents were like whoa <laughs> 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 no they were great about it but, but. Um, uh, Trump it was right when the whole DACA thing was coming down and yeah. they're bringing and I was like what can I do what can I do and I have a play about DACA students that was commissioned by the Denver Center yeah. that, that was on their main stage. That was huge because it's based on real events. And I just went on Facebook and I said, anyone who wants to do a reading about this to start the conversation about you know, what these students are going through, you right. can have it. And it was, the, the response was really great. Right, um, right. So, and um, it's still going on. So I think about, I think it was about 15 theaters and 35 colleges and then schools and elementary schools right, put on right. the play. Yeah, I do know that uh, we do a top 10 list based on who, what our TCG members report to us, but Educational Theater Association does a list of the most produced plays at high schools. So there's different lists you can look up. Um, and of course, <coughs> we don't count commercial productions. We don't count a lot of amateur productions. So 
you're probably aware of more productions, both of you, through your representation and your publishers than, than we are. But this is, I should also mention that uh, Doll's House Part 2 will be a TCG book anytime soon. I don't know what the release date is, but we'll be publishing that book fairly soon. Are you, I think I saw a question over here. I don't know if I can get the mic all the way over to you. Just wait. I mean, there is the knowledge that there's this whole aspect of, like, these producers and investors, and I don't really understand what's going on there that's sort of weird and I just don't pay attention to. But uh, in this case, I mean, when when the producer, Scott Rudin, called me up about this play and we started meeting about it, he asked me what I needed to make it the play that I wanted it to be, and I told him, well, when I do a play with the Humana Festival, this is how we work. And, you know, right down to the, the, the dramaturg that I work with when I worked at the Humana Festival, Sarah Lunny. And he recreated all of that. He sort of, that he just shaped the entire process to be basically like we were doing a not-for-profit, but we weren't. But uh, from my end, it felt like that. So that was really helpful. I think I would have freaked out if it was, if I felt otherwise. And that is that the only commercial production you've had so far, and like Broadway yes, type? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So you, it's regional theater, what you know, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, other questions? If not, then we can all have some wine and cheese. Um, where that, is that in the next room? I think. Anyway, oh, the lobby over there. The good place for it. Uh, again, thank you all so much for coming out. Thank Lucas, Karen, Quincy. We'll see you at the theater.